Hello, welcome along to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. We're here discussing all things NHS and health related with a political twist. We, of course, being myself, Steve Brine, I represent Winchester in Hampshire. I'm former health minister and chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a frontline GP in the Midlands, I'm chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and chair of the National Academy for Social Prescribing. Marvellous. So, Helen, we recorded the pilot last week. This is episode one. Uh, I think it's happy St David's Day to all you and our Welsh friends. Ah, dear Chumvarichi, Steve. And uh, also, I should probably say, Dydd Gwyldeir we happy sichi. Well, you can say that, but I don't understand it. But uh, we won't dwell on the rugby last weekend. Oh, you wounded me. You wounded me. At least they played and the strikes didn't kick in. This is very true. And all I'm going to say is cricket and one run. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's true. That's a wounding. <laughs> anyway, well, look, uh, we won't dwell. Um, so, so we did a pilot last week of this little venture of ours, and um, I think feedback's been pretty good. Um, I seem to have lots of places I've been. People seem to have listened to it and enjoyed it. I have to say, though, Alan, the, the 70s doorbell that you that will come up later when we open the pod surgery has rather stuck. And uh, people keep contacting me saying, well, I had that 70s doorbell as well. Or, oh, I didn't know you were at Hazelmere Health Centre. I used to be a patient there as well. So um, Hazelmere Health Centre has uh, achieved fame through the pod. Do you know, Steve, I think that, that 70s doorbell was rife throughout uh, 1970s and possibly 1980s health centres because several people have said it to me but I'm sure my GP <laughs> surgery had one of those as well so we've we've created a whole nostalgia moment uh, over the uh, the doorbell to have. Yeah. well anyway we've had lots of very nice messages so thank you to everybody who's uh, indeed Steve, I'm recording this from London at the moment I'm, I'm in the headquarters of the Royal College of GPs but where in the world are you at the moment? Well, just landed at Heathrow, actually, not that long ago. So been in the US with the select committee this week. Bit of a flying visit, to say the least. So we went to, on Sunday, we went out to, to Portland, Oregon. And then we we went down to, to Silicon Valley in San Francisco. So, yeah, we've been, we've been knocking up the air miles. I have to say, uh, in Portland, they had, last week, they had 11 inches of snow. It's the most Whoa. since the 1940s. And, uh, and uh, this weekend, it's been snowing in Southern California. They, they, it was all very British because they, they literally, they sort of fell apart, didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so it was quite reassuring. <laughs> that is quite reassuring. I mean, obviously frustrating, but very reassuring that we're not alone. But um, lots of talk about climate change. Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, I think they're just completely perplexed by it. I mean, you know, on the West Coast of the state, certainly down there, down in northern let alone southern california it it, it doesn't snow um yeah. so you know when when you're in silicon valley and uh, you think you're gonna see the california sunshine and uh, it's sort of mist and fog and there's snow lying around yeah it's a weird one i mean yeah. a portland i've always wanted to go to san francisco it's on the bucket list um but we i mean we we literally flew in sunday and then we flew down on monday night to to california and then we we flew back Tuesday night into into today Wednesday when we're recording this. So uh, I think flying visit is the. If you like, I'm going to be in big trouble when I get home, Helen, because I've been. Um, I was tasked with getting a can of Prime for my son, which yeah. is not very healthy at all. Um, but my excuse is that I couldn't get liquids through security, so I've got some US candy instead. Bad daddy. 
bad dad. I know, bad dad. Um, but look, so you, yeah. mean, you were in some really interesting places. What I mean, I'm guessing that well, it clearly wasn't a jolly on that schedule. So what were you doing and seeing there no. that we can talk about today? So, yeah, well, I mean, look, that's, um, we talked last week about strikes, didn't we? And uh, yeah. literally later that night, there's been some movement on strikes. So that, that was good. Uh, it is, because the nurses the should have been on strike bit, today. But, uh, Exactly. So I, you know, I think um, jaw jaw is always better than war war, right? So that's oh, so that was good. But no, the reason we were there, Helen, is because we are doing a big inquiry at the moment into assisted dying, assisted suicide. And I deliberately say it in that way because, you know, different sides of the debate call it those two different things. And Oregon was the first U.S. state to, to legalize um, assisted dying or death with dignity, as they call it. So. 30 years ago, there was a, a man in a van called Jack, Jack, Jack Overcourt, Oversian, he was called, and he was sort of known as Dr. Death, and he used to travel around in the van helping people to die. He was eventually arrested, um, but that movement became, you know how in America, the citizens can get something on the ballot, and uh, they then they vote on it and they they decided to to legalize it oregon was the first state in the union to do it and they've now had it for for 30 odd years and um wow. we were there looking at the detail of how how that works and how did that i mean that must have been absolutely fascinating to go to where you know in a sense the center of the debate where they've really gone mm. through this in detail because i mean in my experience this is one of the most contentious and divisive subjects um, that healthcare professionals talk about, but that society talks about. Yeah, so I mean, like in my time in Parliament, we've debated it once in the House of Commons uh, on on a piece of legislation, which was a private member's bill by a, a Labour MP called Rob Maris, who represented somewhere in the, in the West Midlands, I think, and it didn't get through. Um, and you know, it was a matter of public record. I voted against it, but but no, it was mm. interesting. I mean, yeah, Oregon was the first state, but by no means the last. There've been others that have done it. In Canada, they have something called the Made um, Made Provisions. Yeah. Um, so uh, medical assisted dying it's called they also have it in some European countries so Holland's probably most famous um, we're also probably going to look at and um, yeah I mean look it's, it's highly controversial well, of course um, they, they you know you have to go and see your doctor in person to request it you then have to refer to another doctor and a second doctor you have to have less than six months to live uh, you must administer the lethal drugs yourself so even though you may be handed them by the position you can't they, they can't administer it and um you know i think it's about 95 percent of people use the death with dignity act at home they have the family around them sometimes they have a kind of living wake beforehand so you you literally attend your own funeral wow. and so you know we heard from both sides of the debate how it's working and obviously those that, that advocated for it and want it are you know are pleased that it's in place they, yeah. they say it's death with dignity those that are opposed are vehemently opposed as as is in this country i mean what was the what do you, where do you think the debate is among medical professionals in the uk about this at the moment so i mean so this is a really topical issue there's no doubt about it and i think the decision by the jersey government i think it was last year to move to implementing this for residents of jersey so uh as of as could be as soon as 2025 i think has reignited debate and discussion amongst healthcare professionals because obviously jersey is is, is so close to us and um, this has been debated many times over the years by the various royal colleges and so the current position uh, that, so that if i give you the three three of the biggest organizations and their view so 
The Royal College of Physicians, the one based in London, in 2019 balloted their members and they changed their position from one of opposition to a change in the law to a position of neutrality, as in they would not oppose a change in the law. Um, so that, that was really quite a big moment. And then and not long after the British Medical Association, which is the doctor's trades union. So colleges are all about standards and the highest possible quality of care for our patients and ensuring doctors are at the highest standard, whereas the British Medical Association is the doctor's trades union. But the BMA have a strong ethics committee and they did a similar exercise of their members and they too moved from a position of opposition to a position of neutrality. But the Royal College of GPs and clearly general practitioners have the greatest amount of frontline contact with the patients and the public. You know, they're based in the communities. They have the long term relationship with public. They conducted a similar exercise amongst GPs and they retained their position of opposition to a change in the law. So you've got a split in the medical profession. And I think and actually, when you look at the details of the votes, they weren't miles and miles apart. But the conclusions were different. And I think that tells us a lot. And certainly over time, doctors have been become less opposed on balance. But there is a very wide range of views. And ultimately, whilst doctors have to be actively involved, some doctors ha would, would have to be actively involved in any process. This is a decision for society and government and politics, not a decision for doctors. As long as if you go for that route, you have sufficient numbers of doctors who are prepared to participate. And all indications are that if the law changed, there would be sufficient yeah. as a doctor. So, but I mean, I oh, it, it tears you apart. I think that's a key. That's a key point is that you know in Oregon they were you know doctors are not forced to 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 take part oh, in the in the death and dignity legislation. Um, but of course there are there are plenty that that do. But one thing I found really interesting is that the if you have lung cancer and you obviously you know the, the physician says you have less than six months to live and you yeah. you seek death with dignity, the death certificate says you died of lung cancer. So there's no distinction made there because this is not assisted suicide. So therefore, your your life insurance does not become invalid. For instance, oh, um, that so is the death certificate, yeah, the death certificate says what your physical state was that led you to that. Now, the cost of this, of course, because in the states, and this would be a big issue if we were to go down this road here, the cost is largely borne by by insurers. So I think about ninety percent of people in Oregon who use it have insurance, and um, so 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 in a way, it's not for all. It's not for all in Oregon because if you can't afford it, then it's not an option to you, is it? So that I think oh. that is if it were to become legal here, then of course you know would, the question would come: Well, would the NHS bear that cost? Because the drugs, although they've come down in price in Oregon, you know it's still not an insignificant. Wow cost would that then become an nhs cost i mean i i do you know i'd never thought of that particular issue partly because i think we're so used to the nhs covering everything um when exactly. it comes to uh, anything around care and certainly end of life and you know palliative care costs um, are mostly covered by the nhs although we do have a huge number of um, brilliant charities working in this space supplementing the work of the nhs some bits they do with contract in the nhs an awful lot is is fundraising money uh, but that does range raise an all, a whole heap of interesting extra questions uh, and, and arguments and debates. Uh, for me, what, what, what I think is interesting is the difference between what healthcare professionals want for themselves or their loved ones 
were they to be faced with a decision versus what they want their profession to be doing. And I think it's an important distinction because what we feel, you know, as healthcare professionals, most people argue and understand in our, our role is to ensure the best quality of care for patients and the best possible death when it arrives. And ideally, what we want is brilliant quality palliative care available so that people at the end of life uh, can die with dignity, um, pain-free, symptoms minimised in, in a way that is of the patient's choosing. So if they want to die at home, they're supported to do that in a hospital, in a hospice, whatever. What's interesting is a lot of healthcare professionals I talk to say, uh, but actually for myself, I want that element of control. I'd like to be able to choose the moment. And I'm afraid that the palliative care system is under such strain that it yeah. won't be there for me. And I think we all we all know of the bad death. One of my mantras as a GP is that when we help people at the end of life, when we get it right, the families never forget. But when we get it wrong, the families never forgive us. And that's the sort of yes. thing you carry with you as a healthcare professional. And, you know, I just sort of find on this, I mean, I think that that is, it's a very sensitive subject to discuss generally. But this particular point is that, you know, the people that, that we met and that I've met here who are very passionate about changing the law, they have experienced and witnessed very bad palliative care ending very badly and so you can understand why they they have that view now i you know i've seen both my parents pass uh, and and they weren't you know it wasn't uh, a bad death in, in, if there's such a thing you know what i mean um so you know i don't i I'm, i don't have that trauma from from that but i, I fully appreciate the situation that, that people are in where where there is that so so anyway the select committee are, are looking at it uh you know we've got doing our field work the slippery slope arguments. I mean, in yeah. Holland now, in Holland, you can seek assisted death for mental health problems. Yeah. In Canada, they're in Canada they're considering, and they will very soon extend their um, medical assisted dying legislation to include mental health problems. I have major issues with that. We did a survey on the select committee when we sort of launched the inquiry. We had just short of seventy thousand responses. Whoa. So you can see the interest in this. So we're not going to come to a uh, recommendation that government should change the law or leave the law because ultimately this isn't a government decision. It will no. be a parliament decision because it's a it's a yes. backbench free vote. It'll be about a free vote. Uh, and we're going to look at palliative care. We're going to look at examples around the world and then we're going to um we're going to write a report which i suspect will inform the next parliament anyway yeah. let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about some of the other things we were up to uh the other side of the pond so yeah so the other part of what we were were in the states we were, we're doing this big piece of work at the moment on digitalization of the nhs and how that can help patient care, how that right. can help with our workload challenge, how that can help with our demand. And we're also doing this massive piece of work, which is obviously the name of this podcast, Prevention. Good. And so, so we were in with Google, uh, mm -hmm. and we were in with Apple. Uh, we went to Stanford Hospital and looked at how AI is helping read um, scans and, and their medical imaging, which is just a phenomenal, phenomenal <laughs> world. So, I mean, Google Health, uh, which is a massive part of what they do as a business is really interesting. Um, you know, you see, you'll see the Apple Health app on your iPhone, which sort of originally just turned in was originally sort of a, a step monitor, I suppose. It's yeah. now a much, much more comprehensive app that looks at all sorts of elements of health and sleep. So, you know, we were talking um, with some of the big tech companies about how they can insert themselves into the health space, and they really want to. And interestingly, uh, Tim Cook who's the boss of apple said that you know when you when he looks back at the history of apple 
He wants it to be about healthcare and how they helped keep people healthy, Gosh. which is really interesting, isn't it? So, well, as opposed to making lots of money. I think they'll do that at the same time. Okay, just check. <laughs> and uh, just to clarify, other, um, you know, to Android listeners, uh, other platforms are available and other apps are available too. Yeah, yeah, thanks Google. But I know it's re remarkable to to listen to the work that they're that they're doing. And um, as I say, Google Health, um, they, there's a lot of synergy between the work that we're doing on the prevention inquiry, looking at you know, all this different thing around activity and exercise and um, the, the physical health, mental health, sleep, housing, the environment. There's so, so such amount of synergy there. And uh, you know, we are convinced that digital has a role to play in that and also a role to play in the NHS. So the way that AI is able to, Stanford, the way that AI is looking at um, medical imaging, for instance, and working alongside our radiographers is mm. is incredible. I mean, that would be something presumably in the medical profession you, you, would, you would welcome. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, you, you've thrown in so many things there for me to pick up on. So let's do, let's start at the end. <laughs> no, no, but the, but, but the AI and medical imaging. So um, it's fantastic. So we're radiography colleagues. And in fact, through the whole of the diagnostic specialities of pathology as well, there's a massive role for AI. So anything where there is massive amounts of data, which has to be interpreted, where um, over time learning and exposure to more and more images makes you do it better is logically open to AI in terms of a supportive tool to help the clinical picture. What's fascinating, however, is the complexity of human beings and all the nuance and all the subtleties of things that go in is the AI is amazing at the hard stuff, you know, the, the, the data processing, but it works best when you put an experienced human alongside it to put the context and I think whereas perhaps five ten years ago there was anxiety people thought you know is this sort of thing intended are people thinking this is going to take over our jobs and what what are we hearing now very clearly is absolutely not this is about brilliant clinicians being supported by the best possible technology and that is the winning combination for me for the yeah. NHS I think there's a there's a, a there's an issue of our baseline technology and yet our brilliance at the front end so I, I see these amazing whizzy examples of quite astounding technology and how it can support our ability to deliver care the real cutting edge but we are hampered on the front line by some really rocky technology the lack of interconnectedness between primary care and secondary care the challenges my colleagues in secondary care have about prescribing you know in my search I've been in surgery a couple of days this week and it's been really heavy couple of days and when I thought about the tech that's made my life easier some's made it easier some's made it harder but the stuff that's made it easier electronic prescribing patient phones up quite literally doctor my daughter dropped her inhaler down the toilet um she's breathless no problem where are you we're on holiday in center parks it's okay give me the postcode right i've just sent a prescription to a pharmacy which is apparently two and a half miles away from you go and pick it up i've told them you're on your way those kind of things are brilliant but my colleagues in secondary care haven't got that luxury or that option all they can do and in fact i received the most awful handwritten scribble from one colleague i won't name the speciality but it took four doctors and two receptionists to try and decipher what on earth was written to then turn it into a prescription for the patient. This stuff we can do so much better. Yeah. And, and that's really well basic end. But... Sorry. I mean, I, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, that, that tech is a key part of, of, it's not the only part clearly, but it, I think it, it can be a key part of scaling the workforce challenge. I think it can really help. We can't just, you know, exponentially just keep increasing the Absolutely. workforce, even if we can click our fingers and fill all the gaps. So I think tech can really, really yeah. help with that. Tech empowered. Um, now, um, yeah, you wanted to talk about cancer. 
I do want to talk about cancer because it's such a massive topic that affects so many people's daily lives. But I think we should just touch on the fact that today the Public Account Committee uh, released the latest report and, and it's titled sort of Managing NHS Waiting Lists and Backlogs. But the focus of it's been about cancer waits. Now, I haven't had a chance to read it all in detail, but I know that some people are unhappy with what it says because, I mean, the Public Accounts Committee do brilliant work and you can tell us more about that. But essentially what, what the report is saying is that could do better that the system is not responding fast enough and well enough and i think a lot of people who are at the front line both in commissioning the services and busting a boiler to try and reduce the backlog are feeling a bit bruised by it what do you think well the first session we had since i took it over the select committee we had carrie palmer who's of course the national mm. cancer director in with professor peter johnson talking about cancer recovery basically so getting yeah. back to pre-pandemic levels you know the 62 day wait the 28 day faster diagnosis standard you know all this stuff that as we know really matters 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 when it comes to cancer and early diagnosis mm. so um we can talk about and we will as uh, on the select committee about all the whizzy stuff and vials of blood that can give you early stage detection mm. of some very hard to detect cancers and the stuff we talked about last time but um but the basics of getting people with the number of cancer presentations being as high as they are getting them turned around and then treatment in a timely manner where that's required which in most cancer cases it is mm. um you know we are we're off track and you know meg hillier who chairs pub counts committee sort of crosses cuts across all of our different committees all yeah. the different work we do she's brilliant and she's got a very forensic uh member select committee there mm. that work with her and we're actually um this month because we're marched now aren't we mm. uh, this month we've got Callie and Peter coming back in to assess where they are on the 1st of March because they said that they would have a, a key staging post at the start of March as to whether we were recovering our cancer waiting times and from what you haven't seen the report from what you're saying it sounds like that they've got work to do yeah, and I think, and I think what's a bit sort of difficult is the report implies, well, the report states they've got quite a lot of work to do, and yet the sort of the figures that I'm seeing is that more people than ever before are being checked. I think we're up to something like 114% of pre-pandemic levels on urgent cancer referrals. More people than ever have come forward for their cancer checks, and more people than ever are starting cancer treatment. So and the waiting list the people who've been waiting a long time for treatment have come down certainly at the long waiting end so I think there's a lot of really good progress and I guess what I would really not want people to be too taken up by some of the very negative headlines that they've been in the media today and actually there is a lot of really good news out there about what's being done and most importantly if you've got a worrying symptom please come forward for it because what we can't do in healthcare is we haven't yet discovered NHS telepathy we, we're not telepathic we don't know you're unwell <laughs> at home come forward then then we can start I yeah I thought you could read people's mind Helen <laughs> well I have a personal superpower, superpower. <laughs> yeah clearly you do Listen, on the subject of superpowers, you know what it is time for, don't you? Oh, no. It's time for the pod surgery. Okay, surgery sign up and open. Uh, the, the doorbell has donged, if that's what a doorbell does. Um, who, who have we got? Who's been in touch, Helen? So we've had loads of people being in touch, but I think there were two people. I think Claire Kavanagh and Sam Felton got in touch about diabetes. Um, and Sam actually got in touch about a much wider public health collaboration based in your constituency in Winchester. Um, yeah, he is, yeah. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff. But I guess 
diabetes, you know, type 2 diabetes, sorry, not type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes is largely preventable. And there are some amazing initiatives out there. So for people who have been diagnosed, if you aggressively go for helping them with their lifestyle management, you can halt and even reverse type 2 diabetes. And there's loads of research in this area. There are brilliant examples. There's a Dr. Unwin in Southport, who's a GP who I've met, who I've got huge regard for, who's done some amazing work. And Sam brought to our attention the Lifestyle Club, which has been rolled out in a pile of PCNs, which are doing great stuff in helping people turn this around. And it's what we call a teachable moment. You know, you get a major diagnosis. It's a teachable moment. We can do stuff and change your life this way. What about you? Yeah, I mean, look, diabetes cost the NHS in England, what, £10 billion a year. So, goodness, if ever there was a, a subject where prevention is applicable and needed it's that but i mean you you as gp helen presumably you refer people onto the diabetes prevention program all the time and yeah. with varying degrees of success yeah it's really interesting people respond incredibly positively to it so i mean the diabetes prevention program that we've got is great but there's always a lag and there's a waiting time to get into it and we need just need a lot more capacity in it and what is interesting to me is we've got some patients with fantastic response to it but even those who don't have much response to it or don't engage with it are very grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. So I think this is the sort of thing about people appreciate the opportunity to take control themselves. Um, I think there's a lot of issues about um, different parts of the country, people from different groups, backgrounds, uh, and their ability to engage with it and how relevant they feel it is for them. So we need to be ethnically and culturally sensitive in programmes we're offering people. This stuff takes time. But what we shouldn't be doing is, um, you know, doctors... Uh, specialists shouldn't be spending their time focusing on this this should be for people who have trained specifically and have the time to spend to help motivate and encourage uh, the public who are uh, given a diagnosis to uh, take more control and and I then well, well said. yeah for me can we talk a bit about starting young and childhood obesity as well because I'm quite passionate about us helping our young people to set them up for a, a healthier life a, a life that's you know with prevention built in from the outset I know you've got views on that. Yeah, of course, yeah. And that's what Sam's talking about. Yeah, I think that's right. Sa Sam and this this lifestyle club certainly talk about it in sort of adults, but there's also the stuff, the childhood obesity. Um, have you come across Veg Power and Dan Parker, which is about getting more children? I have. They're great. Yes, he's contacted us and uh, you know, he wants to he wants us to talk more about this. And I think, you know, this is a whole subject for a pod on its own. But I mean, when I remember when I was a health minister, we wrote the, the child obesity plan and, yeah. you know, it contained stuff about reformulation of sugary drinks and yeah. the advertising restriction changes, which still haven't come in. Um, no, but indeed. yeah, no, we've got to, we, you know, we've got to recognize, haven't we, that, you know, children who suffer with obesity obviously grow older and become, become heavy adults. And then yeah. they're at a risk from type two diabetes and all, cancer and all the other problems that we know exist i've got one here um from it's dr gray uh stephen helen i agree prevention is better than cure but try telling that to the multi-use that can't access an nhs dentist and can't afford to go oh. private oh. oh so um so we had a letter last week from our nhs dentist um with me and the kids and, and my wife saying that that after much thought, and I think it has been agonised thought for many doctors that leave NHS dentistry that, that, that they're going purely private work. So this is about the contract. 
yeah. the contract basically pays doctors for UDAs, units of dental activity. Yeah. And they feel that it means that they don't get quality time with their patients. Yeah. And that really what they're doing is filling teeth and they're not looking at oral health and prevention of, of poor oral health and all the other things that dentists can pick up. I mean, I've heard examples of dentists picking up brain tumors because yeah. they're right up close picking up oral cancers. Um, and so there are too many NHS dentists leaving the profession. And, you know, what I'm picking up is even if, even if uh, the contract changed tomorrow and it was much more based on prevention, it wasn't just based on the units of dental activities. The trouble is so many dentists have left the NHS that who's going to provide this work? And, you know, okay, in wealthier areas, there are, you know, people can maybe afford to, to pay more or pay to a dental plan but in many many areas of the country where we've got dental deserts or where we don't have any nhs dentistry i really worry that people will just say it's a luxury they can't afford and i'm so glad this topic has come up because as a general practitioner i know that my my life gets so much harder when my general dental colleagues aren't there doing their bit of the prevention piece so um we have a terrible problem in, with children and young people's uh, oral health and um, the single biggest reason for children to have an operation is to have dental extractions. We are having children having all their baby teeth extracted because they are so rotten and in such a terrible state. And there's there's a range of things. This is not just about uh, our d dental practitioner colleagues, this uh, lack of access to them, but it's also about health visiting services and education of parents about oral health for their children. But um, this, this is actually a really urgent health crisis now. Um, and we are setting ourselves up terrible problems for the future. If people don't have good oral health, it impacts directly on cardiovascular health later in life, increased risk of a whole oh, heap okay. of cancers. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we really need our dentists to be supported better. Yes, it's a new contract. Yes, it's initiatives into training more dentists. And I, how on earth? I mean, the most cost effective thing to do is to attract people back from private practice into general NHS dentistry. And that's going to take a big investment and, and a lot of political will. I think will. it's going to be hard, though, because, I mean, you know, the, the, the wisdom is, oh, will they leave and go and work in private practice where they earn more money? Not necessarily no. so, actually. Quite, quite often, not the case. But they've taken a very difficult decision to, to stop doing NHS dentistry. And yeah. you know, that's been quite quite hard for them and I yeah. think then the idea of going back I think they're just I think a lot of NHS dentists who've moved across just like yeah. you know I've, enough already you know this yeah, is exhausting um and uh, and it, in the words of Taylor Swift so they're they're um you know they're they're, they're where they are and I, you know I take some responsibility for this because you know I was dental minister and there have been successive dental ministers in successive governments Labour coalition and conservative who who haven't gripped this and we now have a we are reaping what we've not sown yeah. and uh, and I worry I worry Helen I worry about this one but anyway so Dr Gray's raised that he's he's quite right to do so um I think we might have to um, might have to wrap it there. I think but we there's might. So many, there's so many things that people have been in touch with us about that they want to cover in future episodes. And uh, we've also had some quite interesting offers of some quite interesting guests. Uh, which we, we, just... will, we will leave that as a, yeah, we'll leave that as a tease. <laughs> um, but there'll be some interesting guests joining us over the weeks ahead where maybe we talk about one subject in particular on the pod instead of jumping around as much as we have. But yeah it's been been great to see you helen uh and great you. to talk i don't feel too jet lagged but um anyway listeners uh input is always what we want to hear isn't it we want to hear from what they think about the pod uh where they enjoy it and the feedback of course on what they want to see us talk about in future 
Absolutely. Steve, keep yourself well hydrated and get to bed when you can. Um, but yeah, all sorts of suggestions, gratefully received, political and medical health, but also wider health and well-being. Obviously, prevention's our focus, but as you've heard, we're happy to touch on anything uh, that is health and care related. Now you need to go and get your glad rags on because presumably you're off out partying tonight, are you? So, so Absolutely. Painting the term red and blue. Uh, and, and yellow. Of course, and green. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of love. Till next Take time. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye.